This is Michael Brenner, author of Mean People Suck, How Empathy Leads to Bigger Profits and a Better Life. And you are listening to the 250th episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both discover new ideas so we can better succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you are a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you time. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. And very special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Aribi. If you're overwhelmed by Google Analytics data and not sure how to turn it into actual insights to improve your website conversions, you can get a free 10-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting oribi.io slash marketing book. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketing book. And use that link to get 30% off your first three months. And unlike Google Analytics, you'll get a helpful and friendly conversion expert available 24-7 to answer your questions and show you nifty tricks and hacks to optimize your conversions. I'll have more details in a bit. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Michael Brenner back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his new book, Mean People Suck! How Empathy Leads to Bigger Profits and a Better Life. Michael Brenner has been recognized as a Forbes top CMO influencer, a top business keynote speaker by the Huffington Post, and a top motivational speaker by Entrepreneur Magazine. He's the CEO of Marketing Insider Group, where he has worked with more than 75 brands in building effective thought leadership, marketing, and employee activation programs. And his work has been featured by The Economist, The Guardian, Entrepreneur Magazine, just to name a few. He's also the best-selling author of two other books, The Content Formula, on which he was interviewed on the Marketing Book Podcast, and Digital Marketing Growth Hacks. Michael led sales and marketing for software companies like Nielsen and Full Tilt, and as an executive at ICR, SAP, and NewsCred, his leadership resulted in massive growth. And interesting fact, he has had... 53 jobs. Michael, congratulations on Mean People Suck, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me and, and for outing me for my 53 jobs. Come on, I was saving that for the book. Oh, man. Well, we're going to talk about that because I got a question <laughs> about these 53 jobs. And I guess if I look back, I, boy, I'd have, I'd have quite a few in terms of all the summer jobs and you know different types of things. But you know, years from now, I think people are going to say 53 jobs. Yeah, that sounds about right. Exactly. <laughs> Everybody's changing jobs. It seems like almost nobody's doing what they studied in school and they're doing something completely different. So that's right. 
Just to back up a bit, you are on the Douglas Burdett man crush list. I, I just got to get that out there, okay? And there, the, the feeling is mutual, Douglas. It's absolutely mutual. Well, and there are women on the Douglas Burdett man crush list. Just <laughs> let's make real clear about that, including um, like Anne Hanley. Oh my yeah. goodness! So I had been reading your blog uh, and your reading about you for a couple of years, and just a, a really big fan. And I continue to read your blog. And then one day, and I remember it was a Friday, <laughs> I got a LinkedIn connection from Michael Brenner. I mean, I'm thinking I would never connect with him. I mean, he's Michael Brenner. And I got a LinkedIn connection from you, and I responded back and said, holy cow, I'm a big Michael Brenner fan. And you said, well, I'm kind of a fan of yours. So anyway, uh, you did that when you were writing a, an article about a list of B2B blogs, and mm -hmm. I was really very, very excited about that. And then even later, I was able to uh, contribute to your Marketing Insider Group blog, which I, like I said, I still uh, regularly read and I share it. It's, it's, it's uh, really one of my favorites. Thank you. I, I'm blushing uh, as you talk. <laughs> so, so this is the second time you've been on the podcast and uh, one more book and you mm -hmm. will be in a very exclusive club, the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club. Wow. And that gets you all kinds of, as I often say, you know, discounts at uh, restaurants that are offering discounts and, <laughs> you know, half price drinks, mm -hmm. primarily at watering holes that have uh, happy hour specials. So when I first found out about this book, you know, I know this is, you know, Jerry Maguire, one of my favorite movies, You Had Me at Empathy. <laughs> and I have been giving talks, uh, various talks, and in, I think in and in all of them, one of the points I sum up with or, or I, uh, I truly try to make is that that's the most important word in marketing and sales mm -hmm. is empathy. And so when I saw this, I thought this was just uh, a book that has to be on. You had me at empathy. And I want to mm -hmm. start with one quote from the beginning where you say, I know it's not easy. It's hard to resist our natural tendency to focus on what we want and concentrate instead on what we can do for others. Creating a culture of empathy requires a lot more effort, but it's worth it because good things happen to those individuals and companies who do. Some readers may not believe this or may still be skeptical, but I want to show how you can get what you want with empathy. I'll share stories, examples, mental frameworks of companies and what I call champions, individuals who have used empathy, made other people more important, and achieved success beyond their wildest dreams. The bottom line of this book, empathy for others is the key to getting the lives and careers we want. If you are unhappy in your career, you have the power to change your situation and make a massive impact on your life and in your business. Okay, empathy is not sorrow, compassion, or pity. Mm -hmm. Explain what empathy is, please. I don't know that I have the textbook definition in front of me, but it, you know, for me, it is, you know, we, we hear the term, it's walking a mile in the shoe, you know, in someone else's shoes. It, it's not about feeling bad for someone, for sure. That's sympathy. Um, it's not about wanting to help someone or lift them up. That's compassion. It's really, truly imagining yourself as someone else. It's the reason why in the book I reference this video, it's a, a child crying while she's watching a dinosaur. And if, you, if your listeners Google that and find that video, you will be crying at, or laughing. It, it, it depends on your, <laughs> your state of mind at the time. Well, we'll make but sure it, to include it in your episode show uh, notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. 
will do that. And it's amazing because you see this, I don't know, she's maybe 16 months old, this child who's so incredibly sad because this dinosaur fell into a puddle, I think, and, and, you know, and, and was separated from her mother. And, and what you start to realize is she's sad because she feels – she understands what it's like to fall into a puddle. She understands what it's like to feel separated from her mom. And so those are the things that – I mentioned the research in the book that said that we're not actually born with empathy. We are taught empathy through experience early on in our lives. And so that's what empathy is. It's the ability to, to truly feel what someone else is feeling because we're imagining what their life is like. And from my perspective, when any kind of company shows an inkling of empathy <laughs> for what, whatever the challenges I'm, I'm looking for or trying to solve, whether it's my business or personal life or whatever, they really really stand out. I think it's because it's such a, a rare quality. So we mentioned that you've had 53 jobs so far. <laughs> Obviously, you'll have to update this. No, I'm kidding. You, you, you seem to have a rather stable job now uh, running your own company. What did those jobs teach you about how much mean people suck? Yeah. Well, the good thing about my job now is most days I like my boss. That's the difference, really. <laughs> I think is is no. I, it was really the the it was the beginning. Um, and I, I tell a couple of well, stories. is your boss? It's your wife, isn't it? Well, yeah, that's true. That's and the kids. I think you mentioned that at the very beginning of the book in the I dedication. Do, in my dedication, I do dedicate it to my re- my real boss, my, right. my wife. But in the business, at least, I think I'm my own boss, and and that's partly why I'd love to stay where I am. But uh, but you know, it, that was part of it. Is it was a part of um, a speech I was giving, and I was like, you know, how many jobs have I had? And I went through and I looked at it, and I I was shocked when I did the the actual counting. I, I couldn't believe it was fifty. It's really fifty two. Fit number fifty three is coach husband therapist i think uh-huh. um but you know i was i was just shocked These and then 53 thought, paid jobs 52 paid jobs exactly <laughs> okay. and and i thought to myself you know how many of those jobs did i love either my boss or the company or what i was doing and those three things almost never lined up you know i sometimes i liked what i was doing but i didn't like the company and i liked the job you know or like the boss and like those things those three things never really lined up and and so it, it just got me to thinking how many other people are in that same position and then i started doing the research and seeing we all you know know gallup and and some of their employee engagement numbers are pitiful i mean 66% of us are not engaged or happy in our jobs but then i started looking at 77% of people feel like their job has absolutely no impact, that it creates no, no measurable, oh. uh, you know, results. It's just, it's, I started getting more and more and more depressed. And so that was the day I decided, you know, I need to write a book that answers this question. And, you know, as a marketer and as a marketing executive, um, marketers complain to me all the time. I, I see my former colleagues inside corporate marketing departments and I ask them how they're doing. And the answer is almost never, I'm doing great. I love my job. My company is amazing. And my boss is the best. Um, <laughs> right. I almost never hear that. In fact, most of the time people say, how'd you do it? How'd you get out? You, you know, you made the break. <laughs> and yeah. so- it's a shame because there's some people that can do real good things inside companies, and we need people inside companies to, you know, people that understand the power of empathy to start to change what, what I think is really a crisis. Right. Well, how did we get to this place of low morale, or has it always been like that? No, I, I mean, I, I don't. I'm sure there was always some level of discontent. I think people, you know, I think we've moved to social, digital, mobile technologies have. have 
obviously disrupted the world and the world of work for sure. Uh, you're, you know, you're a former military guy. I'm sure you know when you enter the military, you don't expect that it's going to be a democracy. Yeah, they make that real clear. <laughs> and and so I think in the 50s, you know, when you became a company man, you you sort of accepted that you would have to do what you were told and in exchange there was there was a, you know, the, you received something, you received a lifetime of employment, you received, you know, you were able to pay your mortgage and you got benefits for your for your family. Uh, that that contract changed uh yes. with the dawn of of digital social mobile technologies and and now I think the expectation from employees, we see it in the in the Edelman trust barometer. Mm-hmm. We don't trust companies. We don't trust executives. We certainly don't trust politicians. We don't trust the media. I mean, we all know these things, but the level of distrust that we now have for these institutions has changed dramatically. And yet, I think we still have leaders. And you know, again, I, I don't mention any politicians in the book, but you know, you, it doesn't matter. You can imagine any politician. I think who think, and this is true of leaders and companies as well who think that their job is to tell people what to do. They're still operating in a command and control environment that yes. no longer fits the world that we live in. That's, mm-hmm. what, that's what's changed. Yeah. So we, we know that we should be kind and have empathy. <laughs> but why do us, so many of us, especially in the business world, not display empathy for others? Yeah, well, I, I talk in the book. I identified the real problem is the org chart, and we were just kind of getting to that. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk it, about that org chart. Why, yeah, why it, is that such a fundamental – why is that such a broken aspect, and, and, and what do you propose instead? I absolutely loved it, and I'm, I'm stealing it. Oh, yeah, there is so much in this book I'm stealing. I'm just – go ahead and lock me up now. I will, of I, course, I, attribute everything to your book, I, but I, yeah, I, let's I, get into the org chart. That I loved it. I wrote it to let this idea spread, as Ted likes to say. The, the, the point is, what I found – so as a marketer, I, I tell the story when I joined a technology company. And I looked around and I saw that more than almost 60% of the marketing campaigns that were executed by really smart marketers, I, I could tell they were smart. They were well-intentioned. 60% of them didn't they, – they weren't like not great. They didn't produce a single lead for the organization, which was that the was goal. That was a great story, and I think there are so many listeners that can relate to that. I'm sure there Go, are. Talk and, more about that because it was – you went through – these were smart people. These were good people, but you came in. You were new, so you had a friend fresh perspective and you were just yeah. you were seeing like it, it was as if you'd come in and see you could see massive amounts of good food was going to waste exactly it, I, I even used the word criminal it felt criminal to mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. and and yet you know again I respected these people I could tell they wanted to do the right thing and so I started asking this question like why are they doing the stuff that I think they know doesn't work and the answer was they were doing what they were told they were doing what their manager or the salesperson that they were trying to, to serve was telling them to do and, and so you know I think that led me to this you know, eventual conclusion that number one, it's our natural instinct as employees that we think we should be doing what we're told. Yes. We we think as marketers, we should be promoting the products that we sell. We think that as executives, we should be talking about how amazing our company is. We think as as anyone in business, 
that it's our job and our it's kind of our natural instinct to promote the business and where we work and how amazing it is. And the problem with that is it doesn't relate, it doesn't interact or, you know, in any way meet the needs of the audience that we're trying to reach. Mm-hmm. So so what's the problem? What's causing it? And the problem is the org chart. And and it took me again years to figure this out. The org chart exists as, you know, a set of boxes and lines, as you know, that tell us who's above us and who's below us. Mainly it serves the function of telling us who tells us what to do. The guy above us or the gal above us is the person who tells us what to do. The person below us is the person we tell what to do. And that's that's what's broken. Uh, Steve Jobs actually said this. We don't hire smart people and then tell them what to do. We hire smart people and ask them what we should do. And you know, we can criticize Steve Jobs and, and some of the things that he wasn't uh, the most perfect person in the world for sure. But that insight is amazing. And that's what helped me, I think, to understand the problem is the org chart. So what's the new model, right? I, I, don't, know, I, don't, I don't know what you thought when, when I started proposing uh, what a new model might look like. Well, I, it was a big reveal, but let me add to that. I think it was David Ogilvy who said, you know, you, you hire smart people and let them do their work. Otherwise, if you're telling them exactly what, no, he, he talked about how, he was in the ad agency world, but he talked about how, you know, don't hire an agency and tell them exactly what to do. Otherwise, it's like, buying a dog and barking mm-hmm. for it. <laughs> yeah. But there's another line in your book that just, there, there were, my uh, bill for carving things in stone is really going to go up after this one. And there was one part about behind every bad idea is an executive who asked for it. <laughs> yeah. So true. So true. And, you know, the ego stroking is really strong in the marketing world. But just so people would understand, you know, you think of an org chart, there's one person at the top and it's somewhat triangular and it's got all the, it's the command and control thing that you talked mm-hmm. about. Uh, a flat organization doesn't really come to mind. And no. what you did, uh, or what you talk about, which we'll reveal in just a minute, stay tuned, folks. But it, it brought to mind um, how the greatest companies like Amazon, for instance, they are seriously focused on their customers. Mm-hmm. And basically, I am going to be given another talk soon. And it's like, you know, a few key ideas from 250 books. And I used to have seven. I'm starting to boil it down just to three of them. <laughs> and mm-hmm. one of them is focus on your customers or observe them, understand them. A lot of lip service being paid there, but talk mm-hmm. about the the new model that you propose in this book. Yeah, well, and and I'll I'll go to uh, Steve Jobs' uh, um, nemesis, uh, Bill Gates, who who was interviewed recently, and he said that uh, he was asked, "What is the greatest threat to humanity today?" And Bill Bill's answer, which was just unbelievable, was ego. Uh, and you know, I mean, it's, it's it, ego is not just something we should try to talk, you know, to, to, you know, try to kind of take out of the world. He's calling it the greatest threat to our existence. Yeah. It, it sounds like true. he probably read ego is the enemy by uh, Ryan holiday, where he talks exactly. about, he determined that that's the most destructive force on earth. We all have egos. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of managing it. And it's a right. terrific book that I recommend. Yeah. Good. That's right. So how do you take ego out, right? And it's empathy. The answer is empathy. Yes. And and so what does an empathetic organization look like? It's an organization where every single person in the company is asking what's in it for the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it a bullseye. So if you imagine there's a circle at the center that's bright red and it's all your customers and all the people you're trying to influence and and engage and 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 really have a conversation with. And so imagine if you've got sales and marketing and customer service and HR 
and operations. And, you know, I make the joke in my first bullseye picture that I drew, legal was upside down because legal doesn't give a shit about customers. But, <laughs> but, but in, in the book, I fixed it. But the point is, imagine if even the legal team and the operations and the finance team were asking with everything they were asked to do, how is this going to serve our customers? That is a non-ego-driven organization. That's an empathetic organization. And it's one where it's a rallying cry. It's kind of like Simon Sinek's finding your why. If yes. your why is serving customers, that's a rallying point for everyone to start to work together. And so that's the bullseye organization. It, it does not look like boxes and lines. It's a circle. And at the center is customers. And our departments are spread all around it. We, we, we still need to, I think, group people together by common elements elements of our work, but, um, but we, can, we can, I think, band together uh, based on that core purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, I'm just thinking somebody could go to their whiteboard today mm-hmm. <laughs> and start to envision the organization. And back to um, my buddy, Jeff Bezos. I call him Jeff. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. uh, the story is that at meetings he goes to at uh, wherever the Amazon offices are, uh, he wants an em- empty chair at that conference table. And I've read that he points at the chair, and that represents the customer. Mm-hmm. And so he, even, even a big company like that, successful, even he is having to remind people, wait a minute, that's not what she wants. Mm-hmm. You know? and, then, and then apparently, I've also heard and read that people will be getting ready for the big meeting with the boss man, and they'll say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's going to point at that damn chair. Oh, shoot. I forgot about the customer. Wait a minute. We got to reconfigure this. (laughs) That's right. So even, you know, he's the straw that's stirring the drink and it's hard to do, but that, uh, that different org chart I think would be uh, very, very powerful. And it obviously affects uh, marketing. It affects all (laughs) the content. It affects HR. Now in the book, you say it's not just customers. You've also got to focus on your employees. Talk about that. Well, it, so one of the most influential books, and and I'm I'm always shocked at how few people reference it. But one of the most influential books I've ever read in my career was the Servant Profit Chain, Service Profit Chain. Mm-hmm. And it was it started as an as a Harvard Business Review article, I think, in like 1994 or five, and. Um, Three or four Harvard professors got together and they wrote the article. And then the article is actually one of the top 10 articles on HBR ever. And so they then wrote the book that came out in 1997. I, I entered the world of work in 94. So it was, you know, I was young when I read it. And, and I, it just, it made so much sense, but yet it didn't seem to, it wasn't talked about like good to great is or like, um, you know, some of the other business books that we've all heard. So the concept is so simple. It's if you are working in an organization, with happy, engaged employees. Those engaged employees are more likely to create happy and engaged customers. And those customers, when they're happy and engaged and they feel that loyalty to an organization, they feel served, are more likely to spend more money and stay longer. And that drives up the the share price of your of your company. So it's kind of like, you know, in the book I talk about well, how do we resist the forces of ego? The natural instinct we have might be to say, we need more money, let's raise prices. But if we ask, as I, I challenge people in the book to ask, what's in it for the customer? 
Well, that's not a good thing for the customer. But if you can get your customers to buy more stuff because they like what you're doing, well, that's another way to raise your revenue, isn't it? And it's a way that benefits <laughs> customers. Exactly. And so it's just – it's this counterintuitive notion. The, even the title of the book itself is ironic. Mean People Suck. It was a rallying cry that I think everyone can agree with. But the irony in it is – it's not about the mean people. It's about us. We have to take accountability. Mm -hmm. And so the service profit chain talks about leaders need to take accountability for creating happy and engaged teams of employees. And those employees are then the ones that will create the value that we need to get out of our organization from customers. And that makes everyone happy, shareholders and investors and employees and, and you know anyone participating in the success of the company. Yes, absolutely. We're going to take a break here so I can tell you about this sweet free 10-day offer from Arivi that does not require a credit card, will make you look smart. And frankly, if you don't take advantage of it, I might wonder if you're listening to the right podcast. Plus, there's an additional special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners. As marketers, we're drowning in website data. Have you ever looked at a Google Analytics report or tried to explain to someone? Knowing exactly what to do with Google Analytics data isn't easy. It was built for analytics experts with plenty of time, technical resources, and a pretty deep understanding of that platform, unlike most of us. Aribi's goal is to make web analytics easy, and the Aribi platform has proven to be a game changer for thousands of businesses. That's because Aribi translates your website data into actionable insights and helps you focus on what really matters and what requires your attention right now. We've been using Aribi here at Artillery, and I know this sounds crazy, but it reminds me of when I was in the Army and the first time I ever put on night vision goggles. Suddenly, I could see things I didn't see before. Like I said, it's kind of a game changer, or as I recall saying in both instances, whoa! And unlike Google Analytics, you get a helpful and friendly conversion expert available 24-7 to answer your questions and show you nifty tricks and hacks to optimize your conversions. You can even ask for Emily. She's a marketing book podcast listener just like you, but don't get her started on Nebraska football. Remember, this is a free 10-day trial that does not require a credit card, so even if you don't end up using a rebe past the trial, you'll get access to all the reports and insights to improve your website conversions, and you'll get 24-7 access to a conversion expert. But wait! There's more. Marketing Book Podcast listeners who sign up for Aribi will get 30% off their first three months. With savings like that, you might consider sending your host a bottle of single malt scotch. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and take advantage of this offer, go to oribi.io slash marketingbook. That's spelled O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. There's also a link to it on this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, back to the show. So, Michael, when you give speeches to business leaders in like marketing and sales and HR and customer teams, you ask the audience, what's your biggest challenge? Why mm -hmm. do you ask that? Well, it, well, number one, I want to hear what their challenges are. But I think the, the main point it, well, I also want them to know that I care about what their biggest challenges are. So those are the secondary uh, reasons. But the point is that I think the answer is almost always the same. And, and it comes in various forms. But it's generally, I'm being challenged to prove the value of what I do. 
And uh, it's true for marketing for sure. The, oh, yeah. What's the RO, What's the ROI of marketing question? It's true for salespeople. Have you hit your number? Uh, mm-hmm. It's true for HR people. You know, uh, whatever the questions are that we get asked, it always comes down to someone asking, you know, well, what have you done for me lately? And I think we all feel that pressure, no matter what environment we're in. And yet, most of us are not given the authority to do the things that we know we need to do to create the value that we're being asked to show. And so it's this, it's this you know, veritable rock in a hard place that we're all stuck between. And so that's why I asked the question, number one, to, you know, to show empathy, to, to, to kind of hear what the challenges are, but also to validate what I know is, is generally the answer. We're all feeling pressure to deliver results, and yet we don't have the, we're not given the authority to create it. So, do any of them ever say that their biggest challenge is that they haven't found the right marketing podcast yet? <laughs> if you could just help a brother out there. Yeah. I will. I will. I, I got you. you. I got Thank you. you. Same goes for you, listener. Please, uh, <laughs> please share this. So your book, and then we talked about this earlier, where you know behind every bad idea is an executive who asked for it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Your book argues that you should begin saying no to requests that we know will not work. And this also Mm -hmm. harkens back to that story at that software company where you worked at. I'm saying, wait a minute, Mr. Brenner, that sounds easier said than done. How do we start saying no to this uh, type A personality that's Mm -hmm. barking out orders uh, that we know won't work? Mm -hmm. Maybe, let's say, maybe we work for a company and they say, I want to sponsor a golf tournament, and you know that's not going to work. That's right. That's right. Well, and and so you you know the story, and it's funny. I've been telling this Cap Gemini story for two years, and I've been telling the story because of Lily Lepine, who is someone I met uh, like six or seven years ago, and and when I heard her story, and then eventually saw the results of what she did, I couldn't believe it. So when I reached out to Lily, she she lives in in um uh, in Paris. I reached out to her. I'm, I'm like, I'm writing this book. I want to tell your story, and she, you know what she said? This is true. You know, just shows the humility of who she is. She she said, you know, it's not my story to tell. It's Rena. You need to go speak to Rena Patel. She was actually the head of brand communications at Capgemini at the time. The platform we built was really her baby, and and I think she's the one that deserves a credit. I, I mean, can you believe, you know, somebody I reached out to, I wanted to give her give her the props and the recognition, and she said, no, I can't really take the credit. So yeah. the story, the story is, and and you know, I did end up interviewing Rena, and I told the story in the book, and the story is exactly that. Capgemini was a number four ranked brand in consulting services, and their CEO wanted to sponsor golf tournaments because he looked around and saw that that's what that's what Accenture and you know PW. And, and Deloitte do. Mm-hmm. And that question came through the CMO who really wanted the $17 million budget that a golf sponsorship would, would give her. And she's, and it came to Rena and, you know, Hey, Rena, we think we're going to get 20 million bucks. We're going to sponsor a golfer. Can you go through the agencies and pick the, you know, you know, pick the right one and the right, you know, tournaments. And, and Rena actually pushed back and she, what she did was she said, listen, I've done the research and I know our customers. I've been doing this research for the whole time I've been here. And what I know is that only 17% of our audience is interested in golf and only half of them are passionate about golf. So if we spend all of our marketing budget, this huge number, $20 million sponsoring golfers, we're going to miss a large percentage of our audience. And so she pushed back and she pushed back by asking what's in it for the customer. 
You know, she did exactly the pushback started from her with that that insight. And that then she started looking at well, what do our customers want? And they started looking at the different, you know, the expertise that it lived inside their organization, as I like to call it. And she found all these consultants that wanted to start sharing their expertise. And so they built this, you know, sort of, you know, you, you and I are both in the content marketing world, but you know, it's a content marketing story, but it's really a story about culture and leadership from Rena. She understood that their audience needed help uh, with new technologies. They found experts inside their organization who could write about those new technologies and guide their buyers through the, the questions in the process. The fact that they were able to publish their expertise led to more people knowing who Capgemini was. That led to them reaching out to these consultants who th- ended up getting more work. And so the best part of the story, you know, it, it, they created a marketing platform essentially that delivered this, you know, massive amount of return on investment. The numbers are unbelievable. So instead of twenty million dollars spent, they spent a hundred grand, and in, and out of that hundred grand in the first year, they they sold nearly double that in revenue, even though revenue wasn't the goal. What's really crazy though, and I I tell this in the in the book, I was telling Lily's story at the time to another uh, sort of consulting service company, and this guy came up to me, and you know again real humble, and and he's like, listen, you don't know the rest of the story, and he's like, the rest of the story is that we doubled down, we got asked to sponsor a golfer again, and we said no, we doubled. Down on this platform, we got more of our consultants involved, and instead of doubling, you know, we thought we would get you know four x return on investment. It was something like twenty one x. So, in other words, for every dollar they spent, they saw twenty one dollars in revenue. It's it's the highest return on investment marketing program I have ever heard of. Mm. And you know, again, Rena's you know super humble about about it. But she got a lot of pushback from you know those guys who wanted to see a logo on a golfer's shirt when they were watching uh, golf on Saturday or Sunday. That's right. And it was it was ego and it was envy. You know, they saw that from their uh, from their competition. Yeah. But the bottom line was it came to Rena and she could have said, yeah, give me the money. Let's go find, you know, let's go see, you know, which golfer uh, we can sponsor, which golf sponsorship we can put our logo on, which, you know, go, which full page ad in Golf Digest we can, you know, put together. And she said no. And just imagine the courage that took to say no, not just to her boss, the CMO, but to the CEO's request. Mm-hmm. And the CEO's request ready to hand them a huge check. So just I want I want your listeners to imagine themselves in that scenario. Uh, imagine them pushing back to do the right thing to solve this conundrum we're all in of in the end being asked, well, you know, what's the results of what you've done? And and so, you know, we all can do it no matter where we sit in the organization. That's one of the core tenets of this book is it you don't have to be the CEO to drive change in your organization to feel like you're creating impact in your in your job. You can be at any level if you if you put the customer at the center and you have the courage to push back on bad ideas. So true. And if there were a marketing medal of honor, she should win it. I mean, this she really was putting her career and her job at risk. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me and instructive for the listener is that she sought security in her knowledge of the customer and what was on the customer's mind. And I heard from a listener a while back in uh, New Zealand, and mm-hmm. he had not been in marketing for a while, but he'd been listening to the podcast, and he then went back and got a, applied for a job at this company, and he got the job. And of course, he said he learned so many uh, 
things listening to the podcast. <laughs> I said, well, thanks, but I kind of have a feeling you, you kind of knew what you were doing. <laughs> but he then contacted me and said, we're in, uh, I think it was some sort of technical uh, engineering kind of company. And he says, what, what's a book I could read to learn more about that? And I said, I don't know. But I said, look, your company is full of technical experts. They're always going to know more about that specific product or science that you're dealing with. You need to go become the expert on your customer. Advocate That's for right. that customer. And sure enough, he came back and said, hey, <laughs> that was a great idea. Mm-hmm. Now they're listening to me because he's basing everything on you know, whatever research or data they have about their customer, and they just can't seem to argue with that. So mm-hmm. you talk about how companies that innovate and grow know what their customers want because they, mm-hmm. they put resources into understanding what their customers care about. What are some of the things that companies could do, listeners could do, that can take their companies to the point where they're doing what some of these other really successful companies are doing to understand their customers? And what I mean by that is beyond the lip service, beyond the slogans on the wall, what are some of the things that people listening could do to start to better understand what their customers want. Yeah. Well, so I talk about champion leaders in the book. And so if you're a leader of any size team or any size business, your job is to champion others. And what I mean by that, it's very simple. I just wrote an article actually on Thrive Global, Ariana Huffington site, about the one question you should ask if you're joining a new company or, or looking to join it, get a new job. And it's, it's to your manager, do you support ideas from your team? So if you're a leader, the one thing you can do, you don't need new resources, you don't need to invest in market research or, or you know, get a new budget, ask your team what they think you should do. Don't tell your team what you think they should do. Ask them what they think they should do. What are the ideas that they have? Because their ideas are coming from the insights that they have. They're closer to the customer. Find the folks that are touching customers and ask them what they what you think that your company should do. All of the innovation, I, I wrote an article two weeks ago on CMO.com. Is there a formula to innovation? And the formula is champion leadership. It's leaders in organizations that ask their team, do you have any ideas that we can use to innovate you know, and grow as a company? And, and that's that's what you can do. Now, if you're an employee and you don't report, you know, you don't have any reports, direct reporting to you, the thing you need to do is to realize that your job is to propose new ideas. And that, you know, that that again takes some courage. It means we all, especially in marketing, one of the things I found, one of the biggest skill set gaps that we had in marketing, that we have in marketing, is the ability to present a business case. Talk to business people in business terms about why you want to do what you want to do. And, and so that it's it's a two-edged sword. That's why I said mean people suck is ironic because instead of just pointing fingers at those executives that ask us what to do, we need to take accountability. Yes. And that accountability starts with learning how to present an idea in a way that business people understand. Like, let's do this because it's going to grow the business. Let's do this because it will save us money. It may not be what you think we should do, but I have come from this, this unique perspective of having a conversation with customers or seeing what programs have worked and what didn't. So defend yourself and your expertise in the form of a business case. Those are the simple walkaway points. Mm-hmm. And I would also equate that, let's say it's the person who does doesn't have reports into them. That is still leadership. That is marketing leadership. And there was another book on the podcast by Thomas Barda and Patrick Bardwise that's one of my favorites. And it was it's called The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader. And they did this massive analysis using a lot of data from 
McKinsey, where mm. Barta had been a partner. And they talked about how the most successful marketers now have a certain leadership quality. And it doesn't mean they're commanding a platoon of troops. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a certain leadership that they have where they're guiding, quietly guiding their companies and proposing these ideas and helping to teach their organization about what some of the possibilities are because a lot of their colleagues are not familiar with what's possible with marketing. That's right. Well, and, and I think, you know, I, I use this line, you've heard me say, marketing has a marketing problem. And so most people outside of marketing think marketing is ads. And unfortunately for the ad industry, ads ain't working so great anymore. Yes. And so we need to teach the rest of the organization what marketing really should be. And it's a conversation. It's, it's empathetic. <laughs> it's authentic. It's human. And that flows directly out of our existing employees, customers, and partners. And, and so that's part of that leadership is being able to tell people what marketing really should be, what it can be, the impact it can have, and you know, being able to support those innovations. Yeah. And I know this sounds harsh, but Anybody who's listening who says, my company, they're old school, they just don't get this marketing, that's unacceptable. A lot of companies are that way. You need to, what is it? You need to be the change. Mm -hmm. That's right. <laughs> start, start figuring that out. And there's all kinds of resources and your stature will only increase. In that talk I was mentioning earlier about focusing on customers, one of the other points of the big three was marketers have an image problem. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, you know, whether it's fair or not, you know, perception is reality. So mm -hmm. stay tuned for that. I want to quote it from the book again, because you're talking about advertising and mm -hmm. uh, how there's still this muscle memory of companies wanting to advertise and interrupt. And mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking to Michael Brenner. I have to talk about content marketing. Mm -hmm. It's required by podcast law. <laughs> so this is uh, page 82. Companies face a challenge. Attention is the new currency. Mm -hmm. But the harder they try to get that attention, the more they'll see the opposite when audiences eventually tune out. The audience that companies are trying to reach is now so vast and needs to stay engaged. So how can companies expect their content to compete with videos like the one of a cat in a shark costume riding a robotic <laughs> vacuum while chasing a duck. That's such a great that. question. But but people think that their their content is is just I mean even their moms aren't going to be interested in the content they produce. That's so right. What talk more about attention is the new currency. Mhm. Mm yeah, it's fun. I you know, I don't think I actually used the term content marketing in the whole book. And, and I did that uh, somewhat intentionally because this is a book for marketers for sure. There's there every marketer in the world can learn from this book. But it, I want it to be more than that. And so, you know, I appreciate you Douglas helping me to maybe reach some of those folks. But but the point is that uh, no matter what you're doing, whether you're a marketer or a salesperson or or a business leader of any kind, we need to understand that it's not people are not interested in hearing how awesome you are. <laughs> people are not interested in seeing your ego on full display. And so in order to get that attention, which is so rare and difficult to get, we need to just simply start by being human. And so, you know, empathy is part of that. And that's a big part of the book, obviously. But I also spent a whole chapter on storytelling. Yes, but Michael, I just want to add one thing to what you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, another carved in stone, page 88. Whether you are a startup founder, a senior executive, a marketer, or in any other position in a business, the bottom line 
is that your customers don't really care about your company as much as you think they do. That's right. That's right. Um, That's yeah, going tell, on a big slide, my friend. I, I tell this story of uh, uh, you know the of Brandless and Tina Sharkey. She's uh, I, I feel like I know her. It's funny. Like I always say, I'm from Reading, Pennsylvania, and so is Taylor Swift. So I feel like we're related somehow. Um, oh man, I know. So, Can we so, stop talking about your book now and start talking about? <laughs> Cousin Taylor. Yeah. Even though even though she was born the year I left for college, but uh, you know that's that's uh, you know showing my age. But Tina Sharkey was the was the first vice president of marketing at QVC, which is also in the hometown that I live in now. And she was is the CEO. I think she's now moved on to be the chairman of the board of this company called Brandless. And when I first heard of Brandless, I thought, what a cool story. And then the more I looked, the more interested I got. And it was it's basically people over brand. And what she realized was that nobody cares about the name of a brand. People aren't willing to pay more just because the name Coca-Cola is on it. By the way, Coca-Cola, a company without a CMO, they fired the CMO, don't need it anymore. Um, the second, I think the second most popular brand in the world after Coca-Cola is McDonald's. Do you know who their CMO is? No, but didn't I, their I, CEO used to be the CMO? Maybe, but they also fired their CMO, so they don't have a CMO. Um, what, do they, what do they have? These marketing's clearly... Uh, <laughs> Important to those companies. My funny joke with Coca-Cola is they took a sales guy and made him the head of growth. He's the chief growth officer, which which is hilarious because their sales are down 2% worldwide, 7% in North America, where he was the former head of sales. So, you know, good for them. Um, I love the irony that your chief growth officer uh, is sitting on top of a declining growth brand. Uh, but the point is, nobody cares about your brand anymore. It, brand is irrelevant. What is important are the people that work there. And that's why I love Tina's story of Brandless. By the way, if you don't know, if you if you haven't Googled it by now, your listeners, Brandless is a company that said, hey, we're going to sell $3 products. And it's a lot of like healthcare products like skincare and makeup. Three bucks, the best products we can make, organically made, and we're going to tell you the story of behind the brands, but it's simple products made with you know sustainability in mind, and we're not pushing a brand. We're not, they don't do brand advertising. Tina's uh, actually reached out to me via LinkedIn when I t- told her about the book, and she's super excited and, and ready to support it. And you know, just I love her, love her story, love what she's doing with Brandless, uh, but it's just a great example of, of that quote you brought up from the book, that uh, we all think the world revolves around the companies we work for. We, you know, and I even talk about there's this weird hero worship that some people have of their of their CEOs and their boss even. And it's just strange. And it's this throwback to the day when that really mattered. And it just doesn't matter anymore. Yes. And I'm sorry to the listener. I'm sorry to you, Michael, but I have to quote one more thing from Go that please. section of the book. Consumers and actually if you're listening to this at work, turn it up loud so uh, maybe that Ego stroke deprived CEO will hear it. Consumers do not want to be reminded relentlessly of how great a product is. They'd rather have information that is useful and interesting to them. If marketers considered what does and doesn't make consumers happy when brainstorming marketing strategies, they might change the content they put out into the world. But somewhere along the line, they either stopped caring or convinced themselves these heavy-handed tactics work. Mm -hmm. Oh, You know, people say, well, why do you do this podcast? Because so many of the books get me excited. (laughs) (laughs) And I've I've just, I I think the listener has been on the other end of that uh, conversation, and it's just, 
when I have, uh, I did a talk once um, for manufacturers and I thought I was going to get thrown off the stage and it was the first time I ever gave it. It was in Chicago and it was called Stop Talking About Your Products First. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in it, I quoted uh, something uh, David Merriman Scott had said about, you know, people don't care about your product. Mm-hmm. They care about themselves. Well, now you've worked your way into that, uh, <laughs> into that presentation. So <laughs> at any rate... So, Michael, you talk about how in your workshops with clients, the first thing you do is you, you ask them, if you could ask your customers one question, mm-hmm. what would it be? Talk about what you think the most important question they should be asking their customers. This really seems to throw a lot of people off. I mean, what are some of the answers you get, and uh, where do you then try to lead these uh, workshop attendees? Well, I always find it, uh, I have to stop myself from laughing out loud because the answers are. Because you have empathy. Well, (laughs) well, it's really more sadness and despair at that point. But but it's um, the answer is always something like, why is your product, why is our product better than the competition? How much does it cost? Like the people are in this mindset that, again, it's like their product is the center of the universe for the people that buy it. Mm -hmm. And those are the answers that I usually get. And and every once in a while, and now more so, I think, there's somebody in the room that says, you know, what keeps you up at night or what what's your greatest challenge? And that's the real answer. That's the answer that every marketer, every business should be asking. And I, I you know, I, I do this mission exercise where I, I usually where the companies that struggle, I usually say, go back to your founding story. Your founding story wasn't like, hey, I got a patent and decided to create a product out of the patent and found a marketer to push it and, and a salesperson to sell it. No, the, the patent usually came from a chemist who was researching a problem and trying to solve a problem. The engineering behind almost every product in the world came out of someone trying to answer a question, solve a problem. And so that's the question that every business leader, every marketer needs to start asking, especially that's what I tell the story of Barry, my first, my poor first customer in sales who, oh, yeah, yeah. as a 22 year old, I was, you know, handed a bag of stuff to sell and I tried to sell it to poor Barry and, and it didn't work. And then, you know, it was like 1994, as I mentioned, and email was new and he was colorblind and he couldn't, he couldn't figure out like how to open email and attach a word document. And I, I helped him through all that stuff. And then he was like, so, so tell me about you know how you can help our business. And I ended up doubling sales with this customer. Be- Barry became my friend. We'd go out to dinner. I would come up and he'd be like, "Why don't you spend the night? We'll go out to dinner." And you know, I became his best friend because I helped him. Yes. <laughs> Wait, right? what? You helped I, him? I, you know, I helped him understand that you know email can be a good thing and it can help him to communicate. And you know, I helped him to change his settings on his computer so he could actually read the stuff. And it was just, it was unbelievable the shift that happened once I stopped trying to push stuff on him and started to look at him as a real person and, and see that he had, as a real person, real challenges, real concerns. And and so, you know, I, I keep you know sort of talking about storytelling. The best stories in the world spend 95% of the time on the challenge, the journey that we're, we haven't quite gotten to where we want to go. Mm-hmm. And I don't think marketers understand that. We want to jump right to the destination, right to that sort of, you know, holy grail moment, the aha moment where, oh, I'm going to buy this new product. I, I love to say, no, we need to help people know that we understand them by marinating in their pain. <laughs> yes, yes, that is so true. You say, um, 
Yeah. In order to create empathy, we need to marinate in the pain uh, or the challenges that they have. That's right. And storytelling is a, we're probably not going to have enough time to talk about that, but that's a, just so people understand, because I didn't understand this until I finally read a book about storytelling. It's not making things up. It's provi- presenting information in a format that, I know I'm glossing over this, and all the storytelling experts are going to uh, wince, but it's presenting information in a in a certain order that the human brain wants and retains, it uses more of their information. So, like, instead of talking about your product, talk about how your product played a, played a role in making your customer uh, a hero. But the That's one right. thing I want to mention is you marketers, you marketers that have a marketing problem, that you have an image problem, please think twice about going back to the CEO or whoever, your sales colleagues or whatever, and saying, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do storytelling. In addition to thinking that you are an arts and crafts party planner, they're also mm-hmm. going to think that you are a summer camp counselor. This storytelling is enormously powerful, but you have to be careful about how you uh, present it. Otherwise, they're going to, there's a, they're going to um, dismiss it. So, Michael, one last question about the book, and this harkens back to a, a whole book that Marcus Sheridan wrote called They Ask, You Answer, and yes, he's also on the Douglas Burdett Man Crush list. But explain, and this, this ties up, this ties together, empathy and customer problems, all the things we've talked about. Explain the concept of answering the questions customers are asking and, and why that is so powerful. Like, like talk about the radiologist, for instance. Yeah. So the, the radiologist story, uh, and it's a, it's a client and her name is Sarah and she works for a medical manufacturing company and, and, and her, her, the team of stakeholders she supports are all product engineers. And so her mindset coming to us was, you know, Hey, uh, we we serve radiologists with this medical equipment. And so we want you to talk about this machine and this machine and this technical aspect of the machine. And I, I, I literally in a workshop with them, I pulled up Google, uh, I, I typed in radiologist space and the the first thing that popped up in Google autofill was radiologist salary. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, you guys want to talk about technology, but radiologists care about how much money they make. Mm-hmm. So let's just write up – and the, 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 the data is always available. No matter who you're serving, the data is available usually from Glassdoor or some of these HR companies that do salary surveys. You can find the data of how much your audience makes, and we created a salary guide for radiologists. And the, you know, the articles and the, and the, the downloadable salary guide have – have taken off. I mean, they're nearly the most viral piece of content this company has ever created because they stopped talking about themselves and they put their customers' challenge first. Yes. And it talked about uh, how they felt like they were overworked and they were going to get replaced by uh, robots, uh, AI, and all that sort of thing. And as I mentioned before we started recording, my wife is a radiologist. And mm-hmm. so I read that section to her about what, you know, what's, uh, what's important to radiology. And she said, yep. Yeah, Nailed it. That's, That's pretty right. much it. At any rate, Michael, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Yeah, I think it's it's really just that it. if you are not happy in your current situation as an employee or a leader, it's your fault. <laughs> That's the one thing of accountability. Take responsibility. Yeah. Take responsibility. It, mean people suck is something, you know, as I love to say, mean people really do suck, but you can't change them. You have absolute responsibility to take accountability for this crisis of, of engagement and empathy that I think we're seeing in the world to take accountability to start creating the environment you want to be in. That 
can only happen when you focus on other people. Amen. So we've touched on a few, but what's one thing a listener could do maybe today mm-hmm. to start to put in action an idea from your book? Yeah, it, it's back to the champion leader uh, concept, but it's really um, ask your team what you think you should do to solve the problems that you're trying to solve. If you're a leader, ask the team of people that report to you. If you're if you're an individual contributor, go ask your colleagues and start to create this, you know, I call it editorial boards or content councils or or innovation, you know, labs. Just start talking to people around the organization and ask them what ideas they have. This the you know, ideas come from the insights that other people have. Those insights drive the kind of change that lead to innovation that cause every company to grow and and to sort of, you know, stop the, the tide of disruption that I think many industries are facing. Great. So this next question, I really only ask of people when they are first on the Marketing Book Podcast, mm-hmm. but it's what books have inspired your working career. But I'm going to answer this because it's on page 70 and we're going to include links. You talked about the service profit chain. You already mentioned mm-hmm. that. And the other book that you talked about as being a great influence is called Grow. Mm-hmm. How Ideals Power Growth and Profit at the World's Greatest Companies uh, by Jim Stingle, the former CMO at Procter & Gamble. Yeah. yeah, so we're going to include links to uh, those uh, on your episode's show notes. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard about that you're looking forward to reading? Well, I'd love to mention a few more. I mean, oh, well, please! I, I talk about the well, the cool thing about those two books is they're not marketing books, but they absolutely talk about the power of marketing, and they talk about the return on investment, the math behind the, uh, the effective marketing. But the the other books are um, Blue Zones by Dan Buettner, which answers the question of you know is there a formula for happiness. I think is interesting. The book I send to every new client is Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull from, oh, yes, from Pixar. I love the writing. I'm, I'm a, I have a man crush on Charles Duhigg, who wrote Smarter, Better, Faster. Mm-hmm. And I just finished Culture Code by Dan Coyle, which actually almost I, – I sent him a note on LinkedIn. I said, listen, your book, which I just read after I just finished my own book manuscript, me, it mirrors my book almost exactly. It's we're like we're brothers in arms. Mm. Uh, so those are a few books that I, I would recommend. Um, you can put in the show notes or, or I recommend to everybody out there that's listening. Absolutely. So – should we go ahead with this next one? Are there any new or recent? Or- yeah, so there is, there's a book, actually. Um, there's a guy – there's very few CMOs who write. We talked about the art of going through an actual publisher and the process that you need to go through. And, and this guy, Vince Warnock, who is the CMO at Cigna um, ANZ, so in Australia New Zealand, he wrote a book called Chasing the Insights. Uh, and I was interviewed for the book, so he sent me a copy, and I'm really excited to read it. And when I'm done, I'm going to send it to you, Doug. Oh. But it's it's really it's it's about this idea that we don't know what the right thing is in marketing. We have to have an it's experimental mindset. And, oh, and he just connected with me on LinkedIn. That's I right. Think I, I, yeah, I mentioned you to him, and okay. so. I'll send you the book when I'm done with it. I'm excited to read it. I'm excited that there's a CMO who wants to share what he knows out with the world. Uh, you know, someone who's do, a practitioner, if you will. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so that's one I'm 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 just ready to start to tear through. Oh, terrific! Well, we will include links to your sites, which is marketinginsidergroup.com, and there's also a site at meanpeoplesuck.com. And I should add, there's very cool merchandise there. <laughs> and uh, we're going to include a link to your Twitter, which is on Twitter, your Brenner Michael. But we're also going to include all kinds of things you've mentioned, and like uh, all the books, 
that article on Thrive Global that you just wrote, the one on CMO.com about champion leadership. I'm going to include a link to Brandless.com, Blue Zones, Creativity Inc., all of these things. Cool. It's going to be some good show notes. It's uh, We're also going to include a link to your LinkedIn profile so that now people can find out all about these things and maybe connect with you. And I hope they'll thank you for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. I'm sorry, Michael. I've just got to quote one more thing from the book. A closing quote, if you will. (laughs) We are experiencing a crisis of empathy and engagement. Mean people suck, but what can we do? Here's my advice. Make a choice. Make a choice to not be unhappy, unfulfilled, disengaged, and focus on others. Apply empathy where it matters the most. Make a choice for empathy in business, in life. With empathy, you can find the meaning in the connections all around you. With empathy, you can understand the purpose in your career. With empathy, you can find a way to enjoy your job, create real meaning for your customers and fellow employees, and make a difference both in your work and within your organization. Here's the truth. Each of us is born with the capacity for deep empathy. As we grow, we learn that we have to defend ourselves, and slowly over time, some of that capacity for empathy is diminished and replaced by our belief that we have to take what we want. But ironically, empathy can get you what you need. Showing others that you care is the best way to get what you want and to live a better life in the process. Empathy is the secret to success in business and life. Now more than ever, we need it, and we need to remind ourselves to reflect on it every day. The name of the book is Mean People Suck, How Empathy Leads to Bigger Profits and a Better Life. The author is Michael Brenner. Michael, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. And that closes the book on episode 250 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Special thanks to our sponsor, Aribi. To start turning your website data into actionable insights, get your free 10-day trial, no credit card required, by visiting oribi.io slash marketingbook. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O slash marketingbook. And don't forget, make sure to use that link to get 30% off your first three months. You can also find that link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time for a live recording of a presentation I recently gave to the American Marketing Association to celebrate the first 250 episodes of this show. Three big ideas from 250 marketing and sales books every modern marketer needs to know. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. All right. I want to ask you, if you got a minute, one other question yeah. from Paige. This is just for my own personal benefit. Mm-hmm. Page, I think it was page 67, where you said, one of the hottest areas of growth for my own firm. Mm-hmm. Convince them to share what they know and what they love because it will help them get what they want. What it, can you say more about what that is? Is that like getting them to produce their own content? 
Employee activation, yeah. Oh, okay, and, and, okay. And yeah, I'm doing it for IBM. I'm doing it for SAP. I'm doing it for um, GE. I'm doing it. It's it's now actually becoming like the second year project for all of my content clients, because basically I usually walk in and and help to find the business case of your website is not producing the organic traffic it could, because you're only talking about yourself. You're not talking thought leadership. Oh. And so we ideate and we create, you know, in many cases, the, the sort of stream of content they need to fill that gap. Once that's done, though, then, you know, the next thing is how do we start to be more human and get our own people to share their expertise and their voice? Mm-hmm. And, the you know, the answer is employee activation. So, you know, some companies call it advocacy, but I hate that term because it's not asking your employees to share press releases. It's asking your employees to create stuff on their own. Right. And, and so, And didn't you, know, you say that? The average employee has more a bigger social following than most corporate social accounts. Exactly. The, the sum the sum of connections of your employees is usually ten x <laughs> what what your brand's social followers are. Yeah. So the opportunity is massive. The other thing too is like LinkedIn showed that the, the click through rate of an employee generated piece of content is three times the click through rate of an of a brand generated piece of content. Mm. So yeah. So employee activation is you know and it's interesting too because it it's actually starts to solve the employee engagement problem uh-huh. that HR's trying to solve and it solves the social selling problem that sales is trying to solve so this is the this is this is I'm speaking a lot about this convergence of HR sales and marketing this Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.